1: Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org.
2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In the 1980s, conservatism prevailed in social, economic, and political life. Popular culture of the decade reflected and reacted to that conservatism as well, For many, the embodiment of the 80s was the yuppie, a baby boomer with a college education, a good-paying job, and expensive taste. Art during that dynamic era is examined in new ways by the Atlanta-based scholar and curator Rosemary Cohane Earth. Her recent book is Painting in the 1980s, Reimagining the Medium. She joins us now with Atlanta-based artist and Georgia State University professor, Craig Drennan. Welcome to City Lights.
3: Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
2: Rosemary, please explain why you believe that painting in the late 20th century has been given short shrift.
3: Well, if you compare it to the first part of the 20th century, you have all the, the greats. You have uh, monk you, uh, you have Picasso, you have Matisse. And following that, you have all the great abstractionists, Mondrian, Malevich. And there's a lot to write about that because it was at the beginning of modernism. And the late... 20th century pop art, yes, it it included painting, but not really as much as it was about these content with consumerism, popular culture. And then other movements were not so much centered on painting. We had a lot of non-painting movements, installation art, photography, video, and performance that and minimalism took the stage. this, this painting resurgence in the 80s and painting that followed it has really not been discussed from a total art historical vantage point. And I thought that was a paucity in the literature and I wanted to address it as we have just enough distance from that period to consider it an art historical micro period or period itself.
2: This volume is published by Intellect in partnership with the esteemed University of Chicago Press, serious academic cred. What readers did you have in mind when writing this book?
3: The book was written for anyone who loves art and certainly art professionals, professors in the field and artists will find it very interesting. But my intention was to also write for non-art experts in a very readable, jargon-free style. Art historical tests can be obscure, bordering on the unintelligible at times, but without any previous knowledge of the topic, this book is, is clear and understandable. So I'm hoping that I draw in those readers who thought that contemporary art was sort of beyond their understanding and that art history left them cold. I hope that would be, this would be the book for those people as well.
1: I wanna add to that. I've known Rosemary, we met by chance uh, Mm -hmm. at Long Island University back in the early nineties where we were both adjunct professors. And we just started having long conversations in the slide library, which was our de facto office. But what I will say is I read this book, it seemed totally uh, Rosemary you know, because it's she can engage with people at any level they arrive with. And so this book, I would say it's for people with a little bit of knowledge of art, but also people with, with not much at all. And you're going to get a nice entry into contemporary painting in the 1980s. And I would say that the portal is very wide on this book. So I expect it to have a wide readership.
2: Fantastic. Historical periods, eras decades work nicely in retrospect, but it's not like someone wakes up and says, ooh, it's a new decade or even a new century. I know historians sometimes consider the beginning of the 20th century post-World War I, 1918 or so, or maybe it's the outbreak of World War One. In any case... Why is the year 1978 essential to understanding painting in the 1980s?
3: Well, I start there with that period because it is the first time, the end of the 70s, the first time that painting reasserts itself. And to paint in a figurative mold was a punishable crime in those days. (laughs) And so... We have the New Image Painting Show and I begin with that and talk about the reintroduction of painting, of imagery and the way that is fused with other painting styles. And I think that's very important. And also I talk primarily about Susan Rothenberg who was in Lower Manhattan in the 70s. And that, that crowd, that art group was what set the stage for the 80s, where art boomed and artists flocked to New York, many of them just out of art schools, which were on the rise then. And so you really have to start there. But the 80s has its own sort of charm and problems, as you mentioned, in terms of conservatism. But also it's a a decade that saw the art market go from what it used to be to this mega industry, this uh, a lot of hype, a lot of uh, huge prices being uh, fetched at auction. They keep going up. But that was where it started and moved from a kind of local New York based or California based art scene to a global one.
2: Mm. If I could bring in my own background, part of what was exciting for me in reading about this aspect of the return of figurative representation and the daring that took because what did you say, Rosemary, a punishable crime? I mean, (laughs) somehow if you weren't dripping like Jackson Pollock or, you know, engaged in the most abstract expressionism, you were either not intellectual, or selling out, or even worse, a discredit to your field. And in music, there was something similar going on. After decades of what, in terms of sound, was the equivalent of abstract expressionism, on the cusp of the 1980s and then with fervor in the nineteen eighties there was a return to tonality, to music and melody that was original, but it sounded good yeah. again. <laughs> is is that a fair comparison to figurative representation?
3: I liked it a lot. And I I like the fact that you bring up music because where the book starts is in the downtown New York scene and music and art were co-joined completely. But I think it is a good and apt one. Also, some of the new music coming out of punk genres and punk hybrids of other music in terms of popular music really was taking hold. And one short example, which I think is interesting, The artist, Peter Halley, who was originally born in New York and then took his degree in Yale and moved to New Orleans because he wanted to experience a very different kind of culture. He was very happy there. And he started listening to David Byrne and the Talking Heads, and he felt instinctively there was something in that music that spoke to him. And it was that that he became interested in what he heard about this new culture in lower Manhattan. And the irony is, he moves to New York. He gets a little subterranean flat in a building way down the Lower East Side. And who is living above him but David Byrne? Isn't that amazing? And they met once. Hi, I'm David. Hi, I'm Peter. And that was that. But, you know, and of course, in Basquiat's case, music was a really important factor. And, you know, it's a sort of subplot throughout the book.
2: If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with curator and author Rosemary Cohane Erf and artist Craig Drennan. We've been discussing Erf's new book, Painting in the 1980s, Reimagining the Medium, Craig, you were still a young student in the 1980s. Did painting by older or established artists in that decade influence your own work?
1: I would say yes. And I grew up way out in the country in West Virginia in a small town. And so my knowledge at that point about the art world was through Art Forum, Art in America, like the normal publications. And I was very interested in it. And it seemed, uh, you know, that's part of the reason I moved to New York, was probably seeing, you know, those articles and reading the descriptions of the work at that time. And it was exciting. And you did have all of these overlapping things happening. You had, the, you know, the early days, the birth of uh, hip hop culture and graffiti culture and punk rock and all, all these other types of painting that were being uh, resuscitated. Since Rosemary mentioned Peter Halley, I want to give a quick shout-out. Peter Halley's studio manager, Lauren Clay, from Alpharetta, Georgia, Hmm. uh, right here, uh, has been his studio manager for over a decade, I think, but a great artist in her own right. Shout-out to Lauren Clay.
2: (laughs) Rosemary mentioned a few names. Possibly the most famous or most recognizable for a general audience would be Basquiat. Were there other specific artists or ideas in the 80s while you were still a very young student that influenced your own artwork?
3: Yes. I was actually in New York, downtown Manhattan, where I had a gallery in the 80s. So I, I saw it and I lived it. There were so many different kinds of art and there was the whole East Village thing. But it was a moment where... What I think is not mentioned enough, as the art market was growing, at that time Lower Broadway was was growing, and in, in these old, what used to be industry light industry buildings became malls of galleries. My gallery is on a ground floor, that was a plus, but you could, could take the elevator up, and on any floor you could get off and go to a gallery or two. So I I saw a lot of different kinds of work going on. And there was, as the art market was also uh, becoming a factor and Reaganomics, there were a lot, of, a lot of disposable income at that time. So people started buying art and to sell art, dealers like to label things. And so the term neo-expressionism or neo-conceptualism, neo-dada, all these kinds of terms came into play as well as the overarching term postmodernism. So there was all these, these discussions about was this postmodern, was it neo-expressionism? And as I show in the book, the artists just reject those labels completely. And it makes sense because as you'll see in the book, the key to all the artists at that time was the variety, the difference in both how the art looked and what they were trying to achieve. So, yes, there was many ideas being bandied about.
2: So you write that this book aims to excavate and analyze the art and ideas that shaped each artist's style. With so many active artists of the time, how did you decide who to include in your book?
3: Well... My criteria was one thing, and that was originality. So you ask, what does that mean? In my book, I talk about the originality, which depends on the artist to imagine something that doesn't already exist. In a larger context, to place that in a larger context, the the story of Painting's Resurgence in the 80s is told through each individual artist's exploration of the medium at that particular time. And each artist in a kind of symbiotic relationship between the making and the mind, which is sort of the lifeblood of painting, each artist really had to find a way to make it new for themselves in terms of the content, in terms of how the art was made, and in terms of how meanings can be derived or brought to the to the painting and that's where it's particularly interesting because the meanings are set up in a way that the participant the viewer is not given all the answers you have to connect the dots and figure out what is he trying to say what is this story about why does this painting that's abstract look like it feels like a neon sign but it wasn't but it was made with oil paint so yes I loved further researching artists that I already knew, but I, I tend to over-research everything. So. And then I really focused on what the artist's creative journey was. And each one is very different and fascinating, and this takes you to all sorts of inter- different narratives and backgrounds.
2: Hmm. Craig, from the perspective of a professional artist, as well as an academic, what aspects of Rosemary's book resonated with you?
1: Well, I like how it starts with 1978 because 78 was an important year. And as I mentioned, you had uh, hip hop really sort of leading the way in what will be uh, called appropriation, you know, with, with sampling and hip hop that later the art world seems to get on board with really quickly. But in 1978, there was a show at the Whitney Museum called New Image Painting. And basically, it was for generations of painters who had grown up experiencing contemporary graphic design. So, starting with like a blank surface of one color and putting a figure in the middle of it with no context necessary, suddenly that seemed innovative. And then uh, downtown in '78, the new museum hosted an exhibition called "Bad Painting," which was just what it sounded like. Like, why, <laughs> what makes th- what makes something bad? And poor taste, and et cetera. Like, why is that interesting? And all of these things kind of, you know, you could feel the rumblings back then that things are about to change. And so when painting, when, when the 80s really started rolling on and you had all these large, uh, expressive, thickly, densely uh, made paintings, I feel for for a lot of the audience and certainly for museums and collectors, it was like a, you had a population who had been raised on conceptual art and minimalism and really sparse installations for the past 15 years. And then suddenly they get this enormous glut of sensory experience, and they just, they just jumped on it right away. Like, it became very exciting, like, very quickly.
2: Very much so. Craig, you have ongoing literary inspiration with your Time in Athens series based on Shakespeare's last play, Rosemary writes about the importance of other media, TV, comics, film, photography, conceptual art. Do any of those forms apply to your art as well?
1: Oh, definitely. And it was really important for me to see these artists like David Sally, Sigmar Polka, Ida Applebrook, someone who I really liked a lot in my early days, and still do, but uh, the idea that one artist could access an entire orchestra of effects, that you weren't limited, you know, to, to maintain the analogy, you weren't limited to one instrument, uh, like maybe uh, some previous decades of art suggested. And so you could do everything. You could do anything. And I think that uh, the fact that, you know, Channel 7, Channel 8, and Channel 9 on your, on your television don't have to relate to each other, even though they're side by side, when you look at a lot of contemporary art that uses, you know, multi-panel works or things that are, or, you know, collisions of images that are, that are juxtaposed together. That just, to me, that feels like, well, these people internalized uh, television on a certain way. And I did too. And I, for my project, I want the full orchestra of effects for sure. And the literary part is huge for me. Thank you for mentioning that, but finding this abandoned, decrepit, play by Shakespeare that was never published in his lifetime, to me, that seemed like a rich source. And what a lot of pain in the 80s did, and I, I guess I learned this too, is, you know, I, I found a subject matter that I know a little bit about with Shakespeare, but not a lot. And most of the audience is going to know, they're going to recognize Shakespeare's name, but they've, they've never heard of time of Athens. And so it becomes a place where me and the audience can meet. And, and I like that idea of using something that already exists in culture as a meeting place between the artists and the audience. And a lot of a lot of folks in the '80s, I think, did that—you know—extraordinarily well. Mm. I
2: love your description there. Timing and TV. There's some good
1: alliteration. <laughs> as long as it's not timing on TV. Time.
2: <laughs> Rosemary, you explore aspects. Of European national identity in Italy and Germany in this book. I found the chapter on German artists in the 1980s especially powerful. Would you summarize how various German artists addressed what you call their country's post war collective amnesia?
3: Yes. It was fascinating doing the research on artists such as Gerhard Richter and Sigmar Polk. Gerhard, there were many of them were infants or just children or born at the very end of the war. And Anselm Kiefer, for example, as an infant, his his grandparents used to take him into the, the forest, the German forest during the day to keep him safe from the barrage of bombs at the end of the war. And Growing up, and this is true for many, all of these, these German artists, they knew nothing of Nazism. There were no wars ever lost. And as older people, they became aware through one way or the other that this wasn't true. And so they, I believe, through the leadership of Joseph Boyce, who I address as sort of the godfather of our post-war German art, they were able to address these topics that couldn't be addressed through this collective amnesia. One term that's used is the, quote, inability to mourn nationally in Germany. And by doing so, and each in a different way, through materials, through imagery, each sort of brought it out into the open. The, The second thing about the German artists is because Hitler had destroyed all modern art in Germany. But he had the famous exhibition in Takata Kunst, Degenerate Art, and he showed all modernists and said it was, you know, it was anti-German, be aware, be careful. And then he, you know, got rid of all the art, which is now, fortunately, many of it back in early modern German art, many of it's back in the museums in Germany. So here's a young artist uh, after the war, and they are just learning for the first time about abstract expressionism. They're shocked that it, there could be an American movement that could take so much of, the, of this, the attention and the stage away from Europe. But they have no knowledge of their great German modernists, so they have no point of departure. So as they, as they learn about the history they really start from scratch and each one has to sort of invent their own style. They were very clear that they didn't want it to be derivative of a French style or an American style. Also, they were painting during a time of a divided Germany and that's addressed in many of the artist's work. I love that chapter and tried to make it shorter because it's longer than any other and I said no can't make it shorter there's a lot to say here and I said it and in terms of Italy I had spent time in Rome at the American Academy I had a fellowship there and I researched the artists there of course Italian artists have a whole other problem you've got the history of Italian painting behind you which is so weighty that it's, it's, it couldn't paralyze an artist how are you going to paint as well as the Baroque artists the Renaissance artists and such they also in Italy went through periods of very conceptual art the art of Povera group and such and performance art and, such, and installation art so they finally just said you know the heck with it let's just let's just paint what we want and they really drew on their location parts of where they were from Mimo Paladina was from the Campania region which is just rife with legends of death cults and, sacrifices and rituals in caves, and that shows up in his work.
1: I might add just a little uh, bit to that. I think the German example is very good because uh, it's, a, it's a case history we have where repression and denial won't work for a culture. <laughs> and I think that in the American South, they're dealing with that. So I, I think that uh, what what Germany learned after the war about how to recuperate culturally, and how to address history, honestly, is now being dealt with finally in the American South with some of the, you know, the monument removals and some of the questions about why are these monuments up to begin with? And, you know, in many cases, and I I agree with it, like, should they be taken down? And so I think that conversation that should have happened in the American South, maybe around 1890, we're just having now. So I think when I read the German section of the book, I was reminded of things going on in the South right now. So I think it's uh, as relevant as ever
2: artist, Craig Dranin with art historian and author, Rosemary Cohane Earth. We'll continue our conversation about Earth's new book, Painting in the 1980s, Reimagining the Medium, in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE.
1: The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U.
4: As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job?
2: This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to my conversation with the art historian and author Rosemary Cohane, Earth, and artist Craig Drennan. We've been discussing Earth's book, Painting in the 1980s, Reimagining the Medium. here, Drennan explains how 1980s art influenced the art scene in Atlanta.
1: Well, I lived in New York through the 90s. I, mean, I was in art school at the end of the 80s, so I saw the tail end of it then. I, mean, I made trips to New York while I was in graduate school at Ohio University. But I think that it did have an impact because I think there was an appetite. I'll go back to my earlier analogy, you know, with with If insulation art and minimalism and very sparse Spartan kinds of work were all that you were being served for 15 years or so and then suddenly you have the option for this really decadent seeming full (laughs) lush form of painting it would be as if you'd you've been served a diet of broth for 15 years and then suddenly <laughs> somebody's offering you lasagna and cupcakes.
2: Yeah. Oh, yum.
1: <laughs> you know, exactly. <laughs> and so I think there was, you know, on some level audiences were starved for that experience of just doing doing more of of again of going for that symphonic orchestral kind of effect. And so I think it was an easy sell uh, in the rest of the country. I will give credit though. I didn't live in Atlanta at this time, but I will give credit where it's due. Faye Gold did a lot to pull art of this era, of the 80s, into Atlanta, and she's the one that brought in Basquiat for the first time. So, big shout out to Faye Gold and all that she did for the Atlanta art world.
2: Ah, the role of the gallerist.
3: Yes, and the role of the museum. There are some wonderful examples at the High Museum of painting in the 80s. In fact, the work by Julian Schnabel, a painting reproduced in the book, is in the High Museum. And they purchased several really wonderful Gerhard Richter pieces. The abstracts that are discussed at length in my text in the 90s, they purchased a those works, they also purchased a work by Peter Halley. So they were really early on collecting and exhibiting that work. There isn't a painter or an artist in in Atlanta that's not familiar with them because of the high, early on.
2: Mm. Rosemary, I'd like to point out that you wrote this, your first book at age 75.
3: I know. I know. Well, it's quite uh, an
2: inspiration, although 75 doesn't sound old anymore.
3: Well, I feel I'm I'm always 23 in my brain.
2: (laughs) Oh, you're ahead of me. I have a mental self-image of 18.
3: Okay. I was going to say 19, but I I want to sound not quite so adolescent. Well, I want to quote a friend of mine. She has a wonderful expression. She said, It was time to own what I knew. My whole background had led me to the the point at which I knew this was my book to write. Everything in my academic life was about painting. I wrote my thesis on a painter, my dissertation on a painter. And I worked downtown in Manhattan in the 80s. And then I was director of Marion Goodman Gallery, where she had. And I got to know on a firsthand basis the paintings by the great German post-war painters. And then at SCAD, I taught, a course, punk photography and painting, the downtown art world of the 80s. And I needed this book. And so I said, I better write it. But I never thought of it. Am I too old to write it? I just, it was a passion. I've always had a passion for painting. And it, it was fascinating to me. So I, I thought, well, maybe... You know, the art history needs to be written about this era. And I found as an art historian, you always start with the first text on something. If you're, if you're using the Renaissance, you start with Vasari. So I, I was excited about the fact that this will be the first text on this topic and then of artists all in one place. There are many books on individual artists, but not one that really covers the, the breadth of what happened. So, yeah, I just kind of ignore the numbers and I still do.
2: Art historian, curator, and author Rosemary Kohaner with artist Craig Drennan. More information about painting in the 1980s, reimagining the medium, is on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, we'll hear about a local nonprofit that aims to help artists understand the business side of art. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for being here. People often think of artists as introverted or self-isolating, and some artists may agree. But the local nonprofit organization, Art is King, aims to convince all artists that they can not only benefit from engaging their community, but find lucrative opportunities in their creative work. Art is King functions as a media platform with a podcast, blog, and magazine, as well as a hub for collaborators and a resource for education in art as a business. Owner and co-founder Daniel Flores joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights.
0: Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me and those kind words about Artist King. I appreciate that.
2: (laughs) Well, we're eager to know more. What is under the Artist King media umbrella And what opportunities does it provide for local artists?
0: Art is King is an organization that is dedicated to bridging the gap between the artist and the business of art. And it happens every day where an artist is found creating some awesome art. Someone asks the questions. I like that. How much? And the artist does not have an answer because they haven't thought that far about their career or the cost of being in business. So what we aim to do is to explore the different possibilities of an art career, whichever level the artist is ready for, and then try to provide as much art business education so that the artist can make business decisions instead of making Heart decisions with their art. So sharing as much art business information as possible is what we do, and our goal is to make sure the artists are better educated so that they can create a sustainable career for themselves. Hmm.
2: Dan, what is your history as part of Atlanta's art community?
0: My career started in the '90s. I uh, was in the Marine Corps in the early '90s, and by '94, I was leaving the Marine Corps. In the military, you meet people from all over the country. And so everyone I knew at that time wanted me to move to their town, to their city. I am born and raised in East L.A., and I wanted to be an artist. I did not know how to be an artist. I did not know what that meant. I didn't know there was uh, thriving art communities around the country. I just, I was just interested in finding my place in art. And so I moved to Atlanta in '94 and I've been here ever since. I have not left. When I got here, I did not know the first thing about being an artist, but I thought that as the city grows, I wanted to grow, and that's exactly what happened. I met lots of people who guided me through different groups of artists and said, go look over there. A friend of mine once one time dropped me off in front of a tattoo shop and said, go show them your work, because in 94, 95, if the tattoo industry was not thriving like it is today. There's a tattoo shop in every corner now, versus back then it was maybe two, three tattoo shops in the whole state. And so I walked in, showed them my work, and they liked my work and they agreed to show, teach me how to do tattoos. And that was my first step into taking my art that I draw for myself and then drawing it for others and getting paid for it.
2: Woo. Okay, so your work as a visual artist is with tattoos?
0: It started with tattoos. In the years since, I've moved into murals, paintings, digital art for illustrations, brand packaging, web design, graphic design. My interests are very broad to the point that I've worked in animation films. I've created concept art for games. In comics. So that was my first step into the art world as a tattoo artist. And that showed me that the initial uh, requirements for a transaction. Somebody wants something from you, you can draw this, th- what they want, you gotta get paid for it. And it happens right then and there. And ever since then, I've been developing my art skills, learning more, understanding the business of art to the point where uh, over 20 years, our career, Nowadays. So, what made you want to start
2: this platform to publish insights and resources?
0: Oh my goodness. The madness that you see on the internet where artists are being taken advantage of. Artists are asking random questions like, does somebody want to buy art? Comments that say, I need a job. Somebody hire me. And so It irritates me. But instead of me lashing out saying, that is not what you say, educate yourself, what I do instead is provide the resources out there to the world through the internet. And then hopefully it reaches the ears of those artists who are a little bit lost and don't know how to approach the business.
2: So, what are some of the most advantageous moves? and artists can make to
0: profit from their work. They need to have a body of work that looks complete. So whatever that is, whatever medium you're in, you need to have a body of work that looks complete. So understanding that it's gonna take time to find your place in the market and find your customers is very important. But take that time to build your talent and skills to show that you can complete something. The next thing would be to understand your place in the market, building of relationships and get to know the local art economy it's so that you know who are those who are spending money on art, who are those who are, are facilitating these relationships when it comes to art, and you get to know them. And the last thing I really would like to push is think about what it is that you pr- bring into the arts community, not just what the arts community is going to do for you, but what you're going to do for the arts community. And it can be as simple as just lending a hand when there's a meetup somewhere and they're sending the chairs out. And, that, and that's just a little simple thing, but it goes from there where you become a person who's providing something, an answer, a solution, a question. And then the community starts to give back in other ways and you get to be known as, as you're building your body of work so that eventually that right person will come up to you and ask you, hey, let's see your work. Let's see what you got. Let's see what you're about. And the doors will start to open slowly, but it does take time.
2: Hmm. You not only stream video of your artistic process, you teach other artists to do the same. How does digital streaming Provide an opportunity
0: for visual artists. It's uh the big equalizer, the internet. It gives access to anyone who's willing to take a chance. And it is our job, individual person, each individual person's job to put the message out on the internet that you want the world to hear. So by the time you meet some a potential client, you don't have to convince them anymore. They've already looked you up.
2: That was Daniel Flores, co-founder of the nonprofit Art is King. You can find out more about their work and resources on their website, artisking.com. Trains are not the most common mode of travel, but kids still love train rides. Rosalind and Maggie Bunn are the mother-daughter co-authors of All Aboard, a series of children's stories set on train rides through southern states. Harrison Keller Pyle illustrated the colorful books. The Marietta, Georgia-based authors join me now via Zoom, Welcome to City Lights.
4: Thank you. Yes, thank you.
2: Rosalind, please tell us how your career in teaching led to writing these stories.
5: Well, I think, uh, and I'm actually almost close to retirement, uh, a couple more years, but I think a lot of the stories, because All Aboard Georgia was my ninth title, you write about what you know. And so working with children, you know, they're amazing. And of course, they give you all kinds of stories. For instance, my very first title was called Sophie May and the shoe and time Fairy. And at that time, I worked with kindergartners. And of course, that fairy seemed to be hanging out in the room a lot. So you really write about what you know, but this series, though, is a little bit different. We were actually asked for a book about Georgia because our previous collaboration, Bow's Bayou Treasure, illustrated by Michael P. White, um, you know, it was fantasy. I'm from South Louisiana. We know about the habitat, the bayou. So it's just a cool story about a little boy with a treasure map realizing that the habitat was the treasure. All aboard Georgia, we were asked by the publisher, hey, we'd like a book about Georgia. And so Maggie and I were like, I'm not really sure what we would write about or or has it been done before? So we decided that a train needed to travel through all the beautiful, wonderful regions of Georgia, the fictional train, the Piedmont Pacer. So I, it just kind of came to us. And we're fascinated with trains, but we never realized, and I think Maggie can confirm this, how many people still love trains that are not our usual mode of transportation. Yeah, what
2: led to collaborating with Maggie as a co-writer?
5: Well, a few years ago, because I now have five grandchildren, and of course my children are grown, Maggie is the oldest, I was kind of changing up rooms at home, you know, for a grandkid room, and then of course for my the different families of my adult children. And I came across a lot of writing that Maggie had done as a child, even up through high school. And I was reading through it, and I was like, you know, actually, was Maggie was pretty good. And so I had an idea about a title about a princess who really wanted a pet based off of Maggie's youngest sister who would bring everything into the house. We would have to shake her down to make sure that there weren't going to be any snakes or frogs <laughs> in our home. Oh my. And I called Maggie up because she wasn't living in Georgia at the time. And I said, hey, would you like to write this story with me? And she said, yes. Yes. And we did it, submitted it, and a publisher said, "Yes, we'd like we'd like to publish this story." And it's really kind of unusual because you don't see a whole lot of mother-daughter collaborations.
2: No, I believe Julie Andrews and her daughter co-write. Um, Maggie, did you ever think that your diaries and youthful journals would come in handy in adult life?
4: No, I never really did. One thing that I really did not like doing in school was writing. So I would wait until the last minute to get something out there. And I think it's because the teacher was telling me what to write about. It wasn't me writing what I wanted to write about. Really? Now, yes, I can come up with my own ideas and me and mom can collaborate and get a story together. And it's So much more pleasurable than writing about what someone else wants me to write about.
2: The books are written in verse. Do you take turns with rhyme or does one of you do the rhyme and one of you have the idea?
4: The All Aboard series, it's kind of split up into each region of every state. So we split up the regions and kind of do our own thing, do our own rhyming and everything. And then we'll come together and put them together and go through each line. Ah. Let's
2: talk about this series, starting with All Aboard Georgia. Where does the ride begin?
5: Well, it begins in the Blue Ridge region of Georgia. And then it travels on all the way down to the Piedmont until we get to the coastal plains. So we go through each region of Georgia, um, you know, from the highest point to the lowest point. And it, like Maggie said, it's all in rhyme. And we try to highlight some things that, you know, it's places that maybe you've been to or maybe you would just like to visit. That's kind, of, And it's kind of like we sort of bill it as just a sweet little travel guide for kids for our great state.
2: Why do you include Dr. King after introducing Lookout Mountain?
5: I think it's because of his famous speech. We just included him there uh, rather than in Atlanta. In Atlanta, we kind of talk about the places that, you know, children might go to. They're probably not going to Ebenezer Baptist Church, I guess, was kind of our thought on that. We wanted to talk about when his speech famously echoed from Lookout Mountain.
2: The Georgia pacer stops at Stone Mountain. Mm-hmm.
5: He does.
2: But the illustration doesn't show the carving. Why do you omit the Confederate monument?
5: Well, I mean, we don't have a whole lot of say with illustrations, per se. We can at this point, because we are, you know, the authors of more than one title. We don't always make those decisions in terms of actual illustration. We can give some direction, like we talked about Stone Mountain and hiking up. And of course, they're really tired at the top. But we didn't offer, you know, illustration direction in terms of it being a monument.
2: Okay. I love the part about Savannah. Would you describe that portion of the story as well as its pictures?
5: Oh, yes. Well, we certainly have been to Savannah many times. And E. Shaver, which is the bookstore that's kind of in that square, you can sort of see the the last part of the names. We know that the movie Forrest Gump, of course, was filmed there. And then, of course, talking about the Native Americans who once lived in that land. We've done that in every book. We just thought, you know, signaling and showing those squares was a super cool thing to do.
2: Now, All Aboard Louisiana is your new book. How did you decide where the train should stop in Louisiana?
5: Well, the cool part about Louisiana is I kind of have firsthand experience. Though I will say, I had not been to every one of those locations. So it, it was super cool to visit them once we decided that it would be something for us to write about that children would enjoy from Poverty Point in North Louisiana, all the way, of course, to New Orleans. But a lot of those places, you know, as a child, I had been to and Maggie visiting her grandparents had been to. So it was, it was easier even though we've lived in Georgia for a number of years and have visited these places that we talk about in the book, there's something about home, of course, where you were where you were raised and where you grew up, that made it a little bit easier to um, come up with the locations.
4: You know, you write about what you know.
2: Co-authors Maggie and Rosalind Bunn. More information about their new children's book, All Aboard Georgia is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the hit comedic play Kim's Convenience on stage now at Aurora Theatre. Plus... We highlight visual artist Crystal Jin in our series Speaking of Art. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta.